Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm Chris Sands at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Chris, we're going to have a great conversation today. We talk about one policy issue each podcast, something pertaining to the Canada-U.S. relationship. And in this one, we're going to talk about a policy divergence, really, on a topic that is top of mind for a lot of people. And that's the topic of cannabis, marijuana. It is fully legal for adult use recreation, adult recreational use, as well as medical use in Canada at the federal level. And it is not, as we know, at the United States level. And we have a couple of terrific experts in the field to really talk us through this and unpack for us why the divergence in Canada and the United States and what does it all mean. So with that, why don't I ask you to properly introduce our guests and then we'll start a conversation. Excellent. Well, thank, thanks, Scotty. It's two very impressive people. I couldn't be more pleased with our guest choice this week. Um, the first is a good good friend of mine, uh, Anne McClellan. Anne is a Canadian uh, recovering politician, but uh, she's a recovering politician now, but she has been Canada's Deputy Prime Minister, Canada's Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, which oversees, among other things, the RCMP. She's been Minister of Justice and Minister of Health in various Canadian governments and has been a leader in so many ways uh, in Canadian public policy. Whereas Graham Boyd, who is also with us, is an attorney, consultant, scholar, specializing in political efforts to reform drug laws and reduce mass incarceration. Uh, he's uh, been advising a group of philanthropists who fund the majority of the marijuana reform efforts currently sweeping around the United States. So he has a broad expertise, uh, both in legal, but also the political side of a movement to decriminalize or, or make legal the use of cab- ca- cannabis at the state level in the United States. So it's a great pair. It's a great pair, Chris, and we're going to get right into it with a couple of questions, but I just in full disclosure to our listeners, I've known both of these, both of our esteemed guests for a long time, and Graham I met when I joined the board of a publicly traded company um, called Tilray, that's a cannabis company, and when I was thinking about starting to do be a corporate director, I went to Ann McClellan, and we had, Ann, I don't know if you remember, but years ago we were at Coronado, uh, and I was asking for your guidance, because you're a distinguished corporate director, so we, we all have crossed paths in so many different ways, but... Let's get right into it. And let's start perhaps with you, Anne. Why is it that Canada made the decision um, to end prohibition effectively, only the second country in the world uh, to do so at the federal level? How did how did we get here? Well, I think uh, people need to appreciate first that uh, we have had a fairly lengthy history in Canada, lengthy since 2001, with medicinal cannabis use. And I was federal minister of health uh, at the time. Actually, I was uh, I was the only Canadian who actually owned and operated a legal grow up at the time, because the medicinal product at that early stage was uh, produced uh, and uh, owned and provided to patients uh, by the government of Canada. 
So we have had a history with medicinal, and I'd be interested in Graham's views on this. I think there comes a bit of a tipping point in terms of, of one's society developing a comfort level. So by the time uh, Justin Trudeau, then leader of the third party in the 2015 election campaign, stood in front of his candidates in Vancouver, and we all know about BC Bud, in Vancouver and announced that he was going to legalize cannabis, um, I think there wasn't, you know, uh, chaos in the streets. There was no reefer madness. Uh, there was, um, I think, people probably a little bit surprised when the promise was made. But uh, Canadians, because they'd heard a lot about medicinal use, I think had even unconsciously and subliminally maybe, uh, had a comfort level. So uh, there wasn't uh, any particular surprise, I think, when the P uh, then a leader of the third party said what he said. And uh, then, of course, the prime minister proceeded to, when he became prime minister, proceeded to put in place the task force, which I chaired. And again, uh, we as a task force, there were obviously dissenters, detractors, some people uh, uh, who felt that not enough research had been done, we didn't know enough about long-term effects and so on, the effects on youth. But having said all that, generally a very high acceptance and comfort, uh, at least acceptance, if not comfort, with the fact that the criminalization of use for personal purposes had created a lot of social problems. Uh, the criminal prohibition was no longer serving the purposes it had been uh, asserted to serve, and uh, that we needed to do better and that we could do better and that legalization was the way to do better. Thank you for that overview. And you know, the social justice um, element of this is one that is certainly um, topical in, in, you know, in the United States as well. But but I first learned about cannabis as an industry, really, from the medicinal angle. There are children that have epilepsy that don't have any other way relief from it. And, and, and there are people with PTSD, chronic oncology pain, things like that. So the medical uh, use in in states has been happening, but but Graham Boyd in the United States at the federal level, cannabis is a Schedule One prohibited substance. So, talk to us a little bit about uh, the journey where where we are for people that aren't um, aren't activists or aren't following the issue on a daily basis. Talk if you would compare where we are in the United States with your observations of Canada, and maybe talk to us a little bit about your role in all of this over the years. Happy to do so, Scotty. Thank you. Uh, well, I think I think what Anne just said about the rationale for adult use in Canada is very apt for U.S. voters as well, which is um, so. So I'm going to get to your question of where we are by first going back a little bit in history and talking about how we got there. Um, the effort to legalize marijuana in the early days, going back to the 1970s and really all the way through 2012. Uh, was activist-led and in many ways was premised on the idea that that the people who were supporters of legalization believed that uh, cannabis is actually a, a beneficial uh, plant, that, that, that people's lives are made better by it, and that it's been much maligned and misunderstood. That's the belief from the activists. And so for many years, the campaign strategy was, well, let's just convince everybody else that this is true. 
let's talk about marijuana and the truth about marijuana would be kind of the frame of these campaigns. And what we discovered by starting to do a lot of research into voter attitudes in 2010 is that that was not going to be successful, that people believed what they believed about marijuana um, and no amount of studies and science and experts was going to dislodge those beliefs. And so we uh, started to explore a different approach to thinking about legalization. And what we settled on is essentially the one that Anne said, that criminal prohibition doesn't achieve any of the goals that that uh, that one imagines. And we found in surveying U.S. voters that an overwhelming majority agreed with that sentiment. What we're doing now isn't working. And yet a, not anywhere close to a majority actually liked cannabis at that time. And so it was interesting. We, we came up with the very first TV ad in the first successful campaigns in Washington and Colorado was a 30-something soccer mom who looks straight to camera and says, it's not that I like marijuana, but what we're doing right now isn't working. It's time that we tried something else. And then you can talk about the benefits of regulation and uh, revenue and that sort of thing. So, so the sea change in the United States was really shifting that political strategy in 2012 and then starting to legalize state by state. And we've now done that in, in essentially every state that is represented, and this is going to get to your question of where are we now, we've legalized marijuana with this playbook that I just described in a series of states through direct democracy, ballot initiatives, and then through legislation. And now almost every state that is represented by two Democratic senators in the U.S. Senate has legalized marijuana. And states that are represented by Republicans in the U.S. Senate, as of two years ago, none except for Alaska had legalized marijuana. And so that, not surprisingly, translates into a dynamic in the federal government where almost everything these days is quite partisan of Republicans, a lot of Republicans kind of saying, what's in it for me if my constituents aren't in a state with legalization? And so that, that you know, people have different views, but that's my analysis of why reform at the federal level has stalled and honestly will continue to stall until we change the laws in Republican states. And so just briefly, the last thing I'll say is that we've started to change that in the Republican states. Uh, we ran campaigns in Montana and South Dakota, which successfully legalized. And those are each represented by, well, one Republican in Montana and two in South Dakota. And we're planning to run legalization campaigns in as many as five additional red states, Republican-leaning um, states uh, in 2022. That will be the place where Republicans are going to start saying, okay, this is something my constituents care about, and therefore I will also engage it. So Graham, just to follow up on that, do I understand you correctly to say that until cannabis is legal at the state level in all the states in the United States, we won't get a change federally? Like what, what's your prediction or your prognosis um, for federal change? No, it doesn't need to be in every state, but I think it needs to be in a, in a good plurality of states that includes conservative states, states that are represented in, in Congress and the Senate by Republicans. Um, my, I mean, and this is totally a wild guess, but my wild guess is that we will legalize in four or five Republican states in the next year. 
and that then the Congress that will begin in 2022 will will take it seriously. Um, I don't know if it'll happen between 22 and 24, but I think there's I think that's the window in which it starts to become uh, a real possibility. All right, and and by the time that comes around, Canada will have a number of years under its belt of its program. And the U.S. often looks to Canada. Sometimes Canada looks to the U.S., but we look we look at each other sometimes or other jurisdictions around the world, but in this case, Canada and the United States, to say, what are some lessons learned? What can we do differently? And, and let me ask you this question, and then, and then I'll turn it to Chris. But uh, thinking about the Canadian regulatory system and the Canadian program, medical and recreational, what do you think has gone well? And what do you think actually uh, missed the mark that, that you think the U.S. should do differently ultimately when it sets up its program? Uh, first of all, let me say that we learned a lot from the states of Washington and Colorado, right? The task force which I chaired, we went down and visited them. We visited uh, retail shops. We vin- uh, visited growers, large and small. We talked to city officials, state officials in the two uh, jurisdictions, the police, and so on. So actually, we learned a lot from those two states. We also talked to Alaska, to Oregon, but we actually visited Washington and Colorado and saw firsthand and heard that uh, firsthand their experiences. So we actually learned quite a bit from them and some of the early mistakes that they felt they had made, especially you know, around various products on the market, edibles, um, insufficient education, insufficient uh, education that reached young people, labeling mistakes they made, and so on. So we were absolutely able to learn from from them. Um, Let me just say, listening to Graham, our constitutional regime is somewhat simpler in Canada uh, in that, uh, as it relates to criminal law, in that the criminal law is an exclusive federal jurisdiction in Canada. So that once the government of Canada passed uh, the legislation uh, legalizing cannabis, no province or municipality or county can then prohibit uh, cannabis uh, as a legal substance in Canada. They, of course, have their jurisdictions around retail and around permitting and those kinds of things. But as it relates to legalization, once that law was passed by the Parliament of Canada, cannabis was no longer a prohibited substance and its use based on the regime that was created by the government of Canada was going forward legal. Um, I would, and you know, I think certainly depending where you are in the continuum of the cannabis, if you like, production uh, chain, um, if you look at this from the industry side, and what we did uh, was create obviously a brand new industry because you've taken a prohibited substance and uh, created a new legal product in whatever form. And nobody has, nobody's alive today the last time this happened because the last time this happened was with prohibition and alcohol. Therefore, we didn't have a lot to uh, draw upon in terms of past experience when uh, when you look at moving a product that's heretofore been legal with some very severe criminal penalties into a legal regime where you are creating a brand new industry. Um, And if you compare the two countries again, um, our industry 
Okay, let me back up and just say, we were not in the business of legalizing to create a new industry and glamorize the use of cannabis and make it cool to use cannabis in whatever form someone wanted to. The prime minister was clear. The prime minister was clear that what he wanted to do was deal with the legal and social ills created by a criminal prohibition. But he was not in the business of creating some big, new, cool industry, um, you know, let's say like alcohol. His priorities and ours were public safety and public health. It may be different in the U.S., I'm not sure, in terms of when, you know, the government of the United States finally at the federal level decides to move. Um, So that if you look at our regime, we treat as it relates to marketing, and sponsorship and advertising. We treat cannabis like tobacco. Therefore, there are very tough restrictions in relation to how you advertise your product, how you distinguish your product from other competitors, what you get to put on the label. It is, to say the least, a plain brown wrapper, just like tobacco in this country, right? And in the U.S., I think it's quite clear that you will have, and you see from Denver and Washington, or sorry, Colorado and Washington, you see different approaches because you have the First Amendment and all of that. Uh, We don't have to deal with that problem uh, on the basis of the protection of public health and public safety. Well, if I could could just jump in really quickly, and Chris, I promise we'll get to you, but Anne, if I could just respectfully make the observation... uh, the government didn't set out to glamorize an industry, but it also didn't effectively stamp out the kind of gray market, black market. So here you have a legitimate industry that's abiding by very rigorous public health and safety standards and and the highest medical standards, Mm -hmm. effectively having to compete still against something that's been around for a long time. So, So I guess what I would hypothesize is that a lesson to learn um, is Canada, you know, there are certain things that, that you would do completely differently if you were standing up a brand new federal regime anywhere else in the world, um, learning from the Canadian experience. Well, the reality is you're never going to stamp out the black market, right? Uh, we still have a black market in tobacco and alcohol, as you do in the United States, right? You never stamp out uh, the black market uh, in these kinds of of products, because there's always an opportunity to uh, try and evade the regulatory regime, um, you know, sell to underage consumers, whatever the case may be. So there will always be, there's a demand outside the legal regime, and somebody will fill that demand. So black market, I unfortunately will be with us. My completely unscientific uh, projection or goal when I'm asked, is I would like to have stripped out 80% of the black market or the illegal market within the first 10 years of legalization. I have no science on which to base that. It just makes sense to me. And actually, our latest stats from Stats Canada Canada would indicate that about 40% of the sale sales of cannabis in the last three months of 2020 were illegal in the black market. So we're making progress. We've got, if you believe those numbers, about 60% of all the cannabis sold in Canada is now legal. Those numbers are gonna go up. Part of the problem is that the province of Ontario, our largest market was very slow off the mark 
right? They, they had no stores. Well, I think maybe five the day cannabis was legalized. That's 37% of the Canadian population, right? Only now are we starting to see retail become uh, to roll out and become readily accessible to our largest population base. So of course they had to buy somewhere else. And a lot of them were still going to the street and using uh, their dealers that they had used for years. Um, so I actually think we're going to see through legalization, um, look, there, there are some buyers who will always go to the street. They're comfortable with the dealer. They're willing to run the risk of uh, being uh, picked up uh, by the police. They're willing to run the risk. They don't know what's in the product, the potency, whether it's got cement in it or whatever, right? They're willing to run that risk and the price is cheaper. But more and more Canadians are saying we're willing to pay a premium for a quality product that is labeled appropriately, that we know the potency, we know the content, uh, and, and we can walk through the front door of a very clean, very nice looking environment and all of that. So uh, to your point, uh, yeah, we still have the black market. Let me, and I know I'm talking too much here, but we also have a gray market. And we did not want to refer to as the black market, those who are part of, for example, organized crime and trafficking to kids and so on. There are a whole lot of growers in this country who've got the best genetics, who've been growing for 30, 40 years. They came from the 70s, as Graham has mentioned, and they are growing in the eastern townships of Quebec, the interior of British Columbia, right? BC Bud, the finest product in the world, completely illegal, right? But great growers, great genetics, they were selling at fa farmer's markets on a Saturday morning and the RCMP just walked by and never charged them, even though it was completely illegal because that was the social structure that was built around something that up until October 18 was illegal. But that we did not want to call them the black market because they're not like the hell's angels. Sorry, they're just not. And therefore, we call them the gray market. And we want them to come into the legal market. And some of them are, but it's going to take time. And I would say it's going to take five to 10 years to get most of that gray market into the legal market. But if you suggest that we will never have a black market in cannabis, no, that will never happen. We will always have organized crime, uh, skirting the laws, abusing their whatever, their, their place. And uh, they, will, they will continue as they do in alcohol and tobacco. That, uh, thanks for that, Anna. And I, I want to pick up uh, and maybe see how Graham reacts to uh, some of this, because there are, I know some people in Republican states are kind of law and order Republicans, and we've heard a little bit from that, especially with the debates we have now about policing, but who are um, concerned about that sort of criminal element. Do you find the same arguments and how do you respond to those arguments in, in U.S. states where people say, well, you know, I, I, I would be with you. I'm worried about the organized crime. I'm worried about the, the lack of safety in a, say, black or gray market. Have those arguments moved any uh, of the people in states that you've worked in? You know, interestingly, I would say that arguments around crime almost work in exactly the opposite direction. Um, so the, the, the campaign messages that, that we've had, and this is based on research, and so it really reflects voter sentiment. People believe that 
it is fundamentally a waste of time for police to be chasing after low-level marijuana dealers. That, that these are the least likely people to be actually causing a lot of trouble in society. And, 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 and yet for complex reasons, a lot of police departments choose to prioritize those investigations. I mean, they're easier to close. They're um, arresting those kinds of <laughs> criminals or it's just less troublesome. So, you know, one of our campaign messages is usually a TV ad delivered by a police officer saying, I would rather that we move marijuana into a regulated system where it's sold in sports and let me focus my time on going after the real criminals. That really resonates with Republicans and Democrats. Same in Canada, right? The police over and over again, you know, it's a waste of our time. Um, unless, I mean, they're obviously, you know, you've got the Hells Angels and you've got the Russian mafia and whatever. And they're in a, a lot of businesses. Cannabis is probably their least profitable sector in many respects. But for, for your local police force, it's a waste of time to be on the streets, you know, looking for kids, especially who have a small amount of cannabis for personal use or to share with their friends. You know, and I have a, a question for you, um, which is really, gosh, I have no idea what the answer to this would be. Do you foresee a time in which cannabis is legal in both of our countries and that it actually is a international trade good in the same way that, you know, I don't know, a corn or a lumber or something else currently is? Or whiskey. Anything but lumber. <laughs> not lumber, not softwood lumber. Scotty knows all about that. That's a, that's a whole different podcast. There's already international trade for Canadian companies. For example, when Germany uh, legalized medicinal, they had no local producers, right? They had no producers producing quality products. So Canadian producers actually uh, exported and then decided the logistics of that were pretty expensive. Let's actually build a facility in Germany. Um, Australia, a number of Canadian companies have relationships with various states in uh, Australia. Now, I'm not suggesting they're importing product into Australia, uh, but uh, getting ready either on the ground to produce in the country like Australia or to potentially uh, export. We can export, you see, for medicinal purposes and scientific purposes. And you have to go through Health Canada's regulatory regime to get the export, uh, export permits. And uh, they do a lot of due diligence to ensure that those expert, uh, export permits are going to legitimate businesses, right? But we already are exporting uh, for medicinal purposes, which we're allowed to do with the right permit. And we're also importing genetics, again, with Health Canada permits, and we're exporting genetics, again, with Health Canada permits. So medicinal and scientific, actually, Canadian companies are involved. It's small, right? It is still relatively small part of what any company in Canada would be doing. But that, uh, that trade does exist for those limited purposes. And I think we'll continue to grow as more countries uh, legalize for medicinal purposes. And they actually don't have growers initially. So Canadian companies may very well have a leg up. Well, can I just jump in on this one uh, just to follow up on the question that Graham asked? There's a there's a UN convention that, that prohibits uh, the international 
commerce and canvas, right? So, uh, Graham, how do you think about things like the UN Convention? Since you since you asked the international question, and then Anne is with Canada at the leading edge of this. Is this something that your good friend Ambassador Bob Ray is advocating over at the UN, or what do you what do you see? So, Graham, first you on the UN, and then and then. Uh, well, I mean, you know, the UN is, issue is interesting. The, the the first country that that legalized was Uruguay, and I was actually um, quite involved in that. The, the the then president of Uruguay invited our campaign team to come down and help them uh, figure out how best to communicate with their own voters, and wanted to kind of learn the lessons that you know we had learned in the United States. Um, fascinating project. They, but the biggest obstacle to to legalization was the worry that it would put them in violation of UN um, treaties and that they would then be punished. And you know, my understanding of this is basically that what Canada and Uruguay have done is it's tricky to defend that under the current um, treaties. And at the same and and at the same time, the main problem with violating drug treaties in the past has been that the United States would impose sanctions and probably still would on things other than cannabis. But it's kind of hard for the U.S. to do that when a number right. of its own states have legalized. So there's this weird, like, realpolitik of, okay, we're all going to just kind of live with this. But, uh, you know, my original question meant to be a little provocative is, yeah, real international trade in cannabis seems like would require changing the U.N. conventions. And is that going to happen or are we going to just live in a world in which the treaties say one thing and increasing numbers of nations do something opposite of that? It's not going to happen anytime soon. And I think we saw, even with the small changes, right, moving from what, Schedule 4 to Schedule 1 in relation to uh, cannabis, um, you know, the WHO finally did some scientific research, which they didn't do when it was categorized as a Schedule 4 drug initially. There was no scientific basis uh, for it to be treated like heroin and uh, other things. Uh, so at least they got it now in another schedule. But that vote was so close, right? That vote was only by one or two countries uh, at the committee uh, moving that from Schedule 4 to one. I hope I have those schedules well, right. Isn't, it, isn't there a death penalty in some countries? Graham? Oh, in some countries. Well, look, we have a Canadian right now on death row in China uh, for uh, now. I'm, I, when I say that, I'm not sure he was dealing only or if at all in cannabis. But, but some countries take uh, obviously illegal drug trade very seriously. The countries that are unalterably opposed to any change right now are China, Russia, and India. And they are bit three big countries at the United Nations, right? They um, And they are unalterably opposed. They have their own reasons and all of that. Um, but I, uh, so I don't see the conventions um, changing other than in small ways, which are helpful anytime soon. But under the conventions, you can still move uh, various product, uh, cannabis, for medical or scientific uh, research purposes. So you're still, even under the conventions, able to do a certain amount of uh, export of product. Um, one thing I, I think, uh, you mentioned Uruguay. We met with the Uruguayans. And Quite honestly, and I hope not to insult or upset any of your Uruguayan uh, listeners on this podcast, Uruguay was a very small country and nobody noticed 
actually, when it uh, at the national level legalized, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but uh, when Canada made the decision to legalize, the world noticed, right? The UN noticed, I met with their narcotics people, and so on, right? The world noticed. What we say in our task force report uh, is that we believe that Canada is in keeping with the spirit of the UN conventions, where they talk about public health and public safety and the protection of youth. And we firmly believe that our move to legalization is in keeping with the spirit that animates the conventions. But if push came to shove, yes, as Graham has pointed out, um, it is probably hard to say uh, technically, let me put it that way, that we are in compliance with the existing UN conventions. But so far, so well, good. Can I bring it us back to North America? Not that the world isn't important, because one of the things just a few years ago that we were hearing about was the problem of the Canada-US border. And I think the COVID border restrictions have taken that off the front line. But the feeling was that because the federal government in the United States controls the border, and it is still a an illegal drug, that especially between British Columbia and Washington State, two jurisdictions where, where cannabis is legal, as this becomes less of a, an issue and you get young people who aren't even sensitized to thinking about this as illegal, who accidentally, uh, when they're crossing the border, mention that they maybe have cannabis with them, the penalties are quite severe uh, still in U.S. law. And Americans can be kicked out of trusted traveler programs. Canadians can lose access to the United States if, if we take this to the nth degree. How can we manage our cannabis policies domestically and also our border between us so that we don't create criminals who really are not intending to be criminals. They're just doing what they think to be legal and then suddenly run into this uh, no-go zone. I, maybe I'll start with you, Graham, and, and then I know because you follow the border, you and I follow the border, and I'll turn to you next. Well, it's, I, I think it's, it is certainly a technically a very real problem. I mean, there's no argument that it's somehow okay to bring cannabis from BC into Washington state over the border. There's, there's no defense you could make in a court of law to that. So what it really becomes is a question of enforcement priorities. And, and I think, you know, unfortunately, there is no real guidance that I'm aware of for law enforcement at the U.S. border. It's really up to the discretion of whoever the man or woman is who is standing there enforcing the law in that moment. And so you're going to get very uneven results. I'm sure many of them faced with a, you know, a young person who had a small baggie of, of cannabis coming in from BC would probably say, well, we're going to need to throw that away and be on your way. But there are others who would take action mm -hmm. and that's a problem. So at some point, um, one of the many things on the list of, of federal law changes is to formally change that law or at the very least to issue enforcement guidance so that um, the border authorities would know to use their discretion, be directed to use their discretion to not prosecute in those cases. Well, if, if I could just jump in before Anne does, Graham, the, you know, the it's not just about if you're carrying cannabis across the border. It's also you might remember the stories that emerged uh, within the last couple of years where somebody was in the industry um, and uh, declared honestly to a border guard, you know, let's call it a Canadian citizen. This, this doesn't happen to American citizens because you can't be barred from your own country 
you know, for these kinds of reasons, but somebody would say, well, I'm going to a trade show and I, you know, I sell uh, the equipment that helps hydrate the plants or whatever. And there, and there were headlines about them being turned away and barred from the United States. So it's not just the product. It's also the, you know, the whole value chain. Um, and, and, uh, the question of discretion among border, border agents will always have discretion to enforce the law. Right. But so your question about guidance, I think is a really good one and, and, and on the long list. Yeah. You know, I think absolutely, uh, you know, border agents will exercise their discretion. And early on, U.S. border agents were actually being, I think, in places like British Columbia and Washington State, they were being quite fierce in terms of, uh, let me just say, being unkind and unreasonable, in my opinion, to Canadians who came to the border. And even in cases where people had a medicinal, they had the medical authorization. And yes, that is illegal. And it was a mistake on the part of anybody, any Canadian who tried to cross the border, even with their product, with their medical authorization. Um, I think, uh, so yeah, we, that's why we have these big signs in Canadian airports, right? <laughs> Telling people that if you've got cannabis, dump it now, <laughs> dump it now, right? Before you try and cross uh, into the United States or any other country, really, as far as that goes. Um, but I, uh, you know, we, uh, for Canadians coming back, they're not allowed to import either, right? Um, and uh, therefore, uh, what, if you go on the Health Canada website, there's a big notice that says, if you're returning to Canada and you have any cannabis products, unless you get rid of them from wherever you're coming from, um, please inform the CBSA agent, right? So don't lie, don't obfuscate, Tell the CBS agent that you have this cannabis. Yes, it's legal in Canada. You've just broken the law importing it. And I think the discretion will nine times out of 10 be exercised in such a way that uh, you have to dump your product, even though it's legal in Canada. You did break the law, bringing it across. Maybe you didn't know. Maybe it wasn't intentional or willful. And um, that in nine times out of 10 is the end of the matter. But Legally, as Graham says, you're not allowed either into Canada or into the United States uh, import product. Well, this is one of the things I, I worry about a little bit. We we got a briefing before I took a group of students to Canada, and my grad students include non-Canadian, non-Americans. And the penalty, if you know, from China, and you're a student at my university, and you come back from Canada, and you accidentally mention to the Americans that you have cannabis, they can deport you straight home. You can't even go back to your apartment and get your, you know, stuff. And for the university, that's a loss of revenue. Uh, we always care about that at universities. So, uh, so we've been very careful. But I, I just worry that the border is uh, an international crisis waiting to happen if we don't try to at least come up with a workaround or a policy soon. I, I don't. Practically, the basic rule is don't take the stuff across the border, right? It's a very simple message. And I know it's hard, especially for young people, but I would say our medicinal, our, our people who are in Canada who are using uh, product in whatever form with a health author, a medicinal authorization, it seems really unreasonable for them not to be able to take that 
medication, let's call it that, that's what it is for them, across the border. But you just have to educate, 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 which is why the government of Canada and other jurisdictions have uh, other orders of government have spent quite a bit of the early revenues from cannabis, from the excise tax and sales tax, on education campaigns, just to help people understand, yes, it's legal in Canada, use it in Canada, don't try to take it anywhere else. Well, that gives me just a window for my last question on this, because it's something that you can see I'm a bit of a bleeding heart. And I always worry about people getting caught in the crossfire. And with other things, we've talked about alcohol prohibition. We've talked about tobacco. I might even throw in casino gambling. Jurisdictions have really worried about that small percentage of people who are prone to addiction, who can get themselves in quite serious trouble, even though most of us would be fine. And particularly poorer people who don't have parents who will send them off to the Betty Ford Clinic or whatever the equivalent is, whose lives can be ruined. Is there around the cannabis discussion, uh, Graham, you've seen this in so many jurisdictions. Is there any discussion of what do we do for those people for whom the drug is, is more than they can handle? Are, you know, addiction programs or other things to help them get back on track as we legalize it for the majority of people who are okay. That conversation for sure happens in every state where the laws have changed. I regret that it sometimes is polarized between sort of one camp who wants to pretend that cannabis is nothing but good for everyone and those who who believe that it's nothing but evil and, and amoral and addictive for everyone. And that's not a place where you can get good public policy. But I think I think a decent number of people have that nuanced middle where they understand, you know, much like alcohol. There's a version of responsible use, and there's also a version of really harmful use, and people who fall into the harmful use deserve and need help. One of our key recommendations from the task force was that, again, early revenues be basically uh, spent on um, support for uh, mental health programs, addiction programs, uh, further research, longitudinal research in terms of vulnerable populations, and so on. Right. It is your point is a good one and we can't pretend otherwise, but government actually should be spending some of the revenues from cannabis sales on uh, addiction treatment, mental health and so on. You know, this is such a such a terrific conversation. And I and I hate to bring it to a close because I think we could keep going. So so maybe if you're willing, we'd love to have you back and talk further, uh, maybe after a couple more referenda happen and Graham, you can update us. But uh, so I want to give give you both the opportunity for a last word. And I will just say, and I'm so glad that we're talking about cannabis. When you and I were talking about you coming on Canusa Street, there are so many areas where you have expertise. And just for our, our viewers to know, my original outreach to Anne was let's talk about small modular nuclear reactors because Anne's on the board of a company called Cameco, which is in the uranium business. And and she said, sure, we can talk about nukes if you want. And then I said, well, but you were also deputy prime minister and attorney general. Maybe we should talk about the border. And she said, sure, we could talk about the border. And then Anne said to me, you know what might be interesting for your listeners is a conversation about cannabis. So I'm so grateful that you planted the seed, Anne. And I also learned today, I didn't know that you had a, had a, uh, a grow operation early back in the day. So that's a, that might be, I mean, that might be new news. I didn't know that. The only one that was legal in the country. And it was like a million miles down a mine shaft outside Flin Flon, Manitoba. And all the patients said, Minister, your product 
is the worst product we have ever <laughs> used in our lives. And it, low potency, grown in the dark, whatever. They said, Minister, you're a terrible grower. That's amazing. Uh, Graham, why don't we turn it over to you for some, some concluding thoughts? Well, I'm really glad that you didn't invite me to talk about uh, nuclear reactors. That, that would have been way outside of my expertise. No, it's a real pleasure. And Scotty, it's good to see you. And, and, and um, thank you for the opportunity to be part of this conversation. We're, we're thrilled to have you. Anne, have you got a last, a last word of wisdom? And then, and then the eloquent Chris Sands will bring us to a close. I would just say it's early days in Canada. We've been at this really uh, coming to the end of the third year of legalization. So watch us, watch what we learn. We learn from you, uh, your states in the early days. I think there's a lot that we can learn together, both on the health side and the creation of, of, in our case, a brand new industry. So let's learn together. Oh, gosh. And you're, you're giving me flashbacks to one of those Nancy Reagan era, just say no to drugs commercials, where the kid turns to the dad who's getting him for having a marijuana joint. And the little kid says to him, I learned it from you, dad. And I was like, oh, this. So we'll learn it from Canada, I guess. I think I am insulted now. <laughs> you have insulted me, oh, Christopher. <laughs> Better stop there. Uh Thanks again, both of you. We'd love to have you back on Canusa Street. Let's stay in touch. I'd like to see how things unfold in the United States. Excellent. It'll be my pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Spotify.